Why study 1 Thessalonians? You know, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for us. We could turn to anywhere in the Scriptures and, and unpack the truth that God has for us, and it would be profitable and appropriate for us. But why this book at this time as opposed to another? You know, I think it's a, a very appropriate study for a number of reasons. One is the eschatological focus of this book. First Thessalonians and, and Second Thessalonians after it ha- have a focus on the end times, on last things. In some ways you can think of this as a, a practical application to the study of Revelation that details the events of the future. This book helps us to think about how we live in light of those things. In fact, every chapter concludes with a reference to the coming of Christ. If you look at the end of verse 10 or verse 10 of chapter 1, it says that they were waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. You look at chapter 2, verse 19, it says, Who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? It is, is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? The end of chapter 3, he prays that they, God may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. The end of chapter 4 focuses on the return of Christ and the rapture. Verse 16 says, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. The end of chapter 5, verse 23, Paul prays, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Significant part of the instruction of this book is about the last things and how we live in light of those things and so it's an appropriate study for us. 1 Thessalonians also has a missiological and ecclesiological focus, a focus on missions and the church. As a church, we are committed to planting churches, and and this book is really a, a testimony to a model church and to the growth of a healthy model church. We were reminded a couple weeks ago on Mission Sunday that it is our joy to see that and to participate in that all over the planet where there are no churches to see churches established. And it's our joy as a church to see churches established in our own metroplex, Lord willing, even in the next 18 months or so. And, and so this book reminds us of that priority of seeing healthy churches established. And it paints a picture for us of the biblical model of church planting and church growth. This book also has a personal focus. It, it gives a window into Paul's heart and his ministry. But there's a particular focus on his ministry and the Thessalonians' response in the midst of a hostile culture and context. Chapter 1 verse 6 describes how they had received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 2, verse 2 speaks of how after they'd suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, they had the boldness to speak uh, in uh, the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. Chapter 2, verse 14 describes how the Thessalonians endured suffering at the hands of their own countrymen, and, and we could see other examples as we go through the book. We increasingly find ourselves in such a context. 
a context of hostility to the things of Christ, a, a context that will continue to be characterized by persecution and suffering. And Paul and the Thessalonian church are a model for us of what ministry and faithfulness should look like in the midst of such days. Those are just a few reasons why this is an appropriate book for us to study together this year. It's one of the reasons, some of the reasons why I'm so excited for this journey, and I trust you will be encouraged by it as well. Well, this book, as with many in the New Testament, is a letter. You understand that not all letters are are created equal. Not all letters have the same purpose or intent. You know, some letters have a very clear purpose and overarching theme and therefore have a, a flow of thought that clearly develops that theme. You may think of, of a, a letter you receive from your insurance company letting you know that your renewal date is coming up. There's not a lot of fluff in that letter. Everything is building to that point. Or maybe a, a note you write to a friend who was recently married or had a baby or who recently lost a loved one, and, and that note focuses on that theme and develops your response to their circumstances. Many New Testament epistles are like that, written with a, a very clear central purpose and overarching theme. Think of 1 John. Hopefully we all know the theme of 1 John, the tests of eternal life that, that just flows through the entirety of that book. Or, or like the theme of Romans, as, as we've studied through a book that clearly unpacks the, the gospel of God, the righteousness of God. Other letters are more layered. You know, think of a, a letter you might write to a friend you haven't seen in a while. That letter might include some reminiscing about memories of the past. It might include an update about you or, or your kids or other things going on in your life. Or maybe some encouragement or exhortation uh, directed to them about the season of life they're in or the circumstances that they're facing. First Thessalonians is more of the second type of letter. It has a personal tone, lots of we's and you's. And it weaves together various themes as Paul is, is writing to this church that he loves, a healthy church, and yet a church in need of not only encouragement, but instruction and exhortation. If you were to structure this book, you could, could break it into two main sections. The, the first three chapters are much more personal. We might call that the, the section of personal encouragement. And then Paul turns in chapter 4 to practical exhortation. Notice how chapter 4 begins. He says, finally then, brethren. Now, if you look at 1 Thessalonians, there's a whole lot left after the finally, right? So this is kind of like a good preacher who says, finally, and then goes on for a while afterwards, you know. Uh, He's really not saying finally as in this is the last thing I'm going to tell you, but I'm now getting to the instruction, to the things that I wanted to communicate by way of exhortation and information and and instruction to you. So tonight we begin this more personal section. We're going to look at the first five verses in which we see an example of gratitude for God's work in others. Let's read it together, verses 1 to 5. It says this, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. 
knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You see, this letter begins with a a customary greeting in verse 1, and and then it's followed by Paul's common pattern of giving thanks to God for those to whom he is writing. You see the main idea of this section at the beginning of verse 2, where Paul says, we give thanks to God always for all of you. That's the theme and the focus of these opening verses of this letter. You know, Paul was constantly thankful for others. This is not the only letter where Paul begins with gratitude for the readers. The the Thessalonians were a model church and a healthy church, but it wasn't that Paul was like, ooh, you guys are exceptional, and so I'm thankful for you in comparison to everybody else that I'm not thankful for. No, Paul's pattern was to be thankful for other believers that he had relationship with. Most, many of his letters, Romans 1 verse 8 says, first I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. 1 Corinthians 1 4, I thank my God always concerning you. Philippians 1 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Colossians 1 3, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Philemon verse 4 says, I thank my God always making mention of you in my prayers. And notice his gratitude was not directed primarily at others, but at God. He doesn't say, I'm so thankful for you all, that that would be appropriate to be grateful for them. But he says, we give thanks to God always for all of you. The example we see in this text should spur us to do the same. And it really gives us a recipe, as it were, for how to consistently express gratitude to God for his work in others. I want you to notice how the rest of this passage connects to this main idea of giving thanks to God for others. Verse 2 says, we give thanks to God always for all of you. Verse 1 really gives the antecedents to those pronouns. It tells us who the we are who are giving thanks for you and who the you are that the we is thankful for. And then the rest of verses 2 through 5 really flesh out this idea of giving thanks to God. There are three participles. Verse 2, making mention of you in our prayers. Verse 3, constantly bearing in mind. And verse 4, knowing, hanging off that main idea that flesh out what it is that fuels our consistent gratitude for God's work. So what is the recipe for such a perspective and practice? Paul gives it to us here in this text. And the first ingredient I want us to note that we find here is that of cultivated relationships with others. Cultivated relationships with others. As I mentioned, like any ancient letter, this one begins with the names of the sender and the recipient and a brief greeting. Paul And Silvanus, sometimes he's referred to in the scriptures as Silas, Silvanus being his Roman name, and and Timothy. Those are the ones from whom this letter is coming. You see, we, 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 all throughout this letter. 
And, and that's, it's those men who, who have a relationship and are communicating these things. Paul, being the chief author of this letter, we see finally in, in verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 27, he says, I adjure you by the Lord. So Paul's writing this, but on behalf of these three men, and he's writing to the church of the Thessalonians who were in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The believers in the city of Thessalonica, who even as we learned this morning, were united in fellowship and in life with God the Father and Jesus Christ the Lord. He gives his customary greeting, grace to you and peace, that that God's grace and his peace would be theirs. Now these names in this introduction, some of them are undoubtedly familiar to us, but they don't carry all the same weight that they would have to the original audience. Okay, as contemporary readers, we read those names and they're, they're sort of just names to us. Paul obviously being clearly recognized as an apostle, Timothy well-known, even scriptures written to him. But to the original audience, they conveyed much more. You know, think of the different kinds of letters you get in the mail, the different kinds of mail that shows up in your mailbox. You know, if you're like me, you get some things that say something like, to the resident of, and then it lists your address. What do we do with those? We throw them away, right? Because we know nobody is even writing to me, like, intentionally. They just want something, and, and so we don't take those very seriously or personally. You probably get a lot of form letters, too. They do have your name. They know it's you who lives at that address, but maybe it's a political ad or some offer from your mortgage company or a random solicitation to change car insurance or, or something. You know, occasionally you, you read those. You don't want to miss something really important, but usually those end up where? In the trash. But sometimes, not very often anymore, you may get a personal letter, a personal note, It may stand out because there's actual handwriting on the front of the envelope and and maybe there's a name in that return address spot that you recognize. How how do you respond to those letters? Well, those letters you don't just throw away. You you probably don't wait to open those until you're you're bored and have some time. You, You open those because you're excited to read those letters. Why? Because that letter is not just a letter, it's a reflection of a relationship. You see, this letter and these opening verses remind us of the cultivated relationship that existed between these men and the believers, the church in Thessalonica. Where did that cultivated relationship come from? Well, it started through providential connection. Turn back to Acts chapter 16. I want you to just be reminded of the history of Paul and these men and and the church at Thessalonica. It was on Paul's second missionary journey that these men came into contact with the Thessalonians. I want you to see some of that story of how that progressed and developed. Pick up actually at the end of of chapter 15, verse 36. It says, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. After their first missionary journey, Paul says, let's go back and revisit these believers. Barnabas, it says, wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. 
But Paul kept insisting they should not take him, who had deserted them and had not gone with them in the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. So this could have been a letter from Paul and Barnabas and John Mark. But in this disagreement, Barnabas and Mark left. And Paul, it says, verse 40, chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. As Paul and Silas headed out, chapter 16, verse 1, says they came to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was Greek, and he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. So Paul wanted to take this, wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So Paul, Silas, and Timothy are now journeying together. Verse 6 describes how they passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them, and passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. Now there's a lot there. Don't forget Acts is is descriptive of what happened. It's not prescriptive of what we should expect. We don't know exactly how the Spirit was directing them in these ways. But in verse 9, a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. When they had seen the vision immediately, it says, we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. You see, God directed them into Macedonia, one city of which was Thessalonica. The rest of chapter 16 records their ministry in Macedonia in Philippi. You remember some of the the things that took place there with Lydia as the first convert and their imprisonment and, and the Philippian jailer. And then verse, chapter 17, verse 1, says, When they had traveled through uh, Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. You see, God in his providence directed them to Macedonia, and they end up at this city, Thessalonica. Thessalonica was a a major city in the Macedonian region. It was the, the provincial capital at that time. It's a major port city and and one that was located on a major east-west highway that was a a key road in the Roman Empire. And God brought them here to proclaim the gospel to see a church established. It says in verse 2 that according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus who I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. As was typical, Paul started in the synagogue, those who had some background in the Hebrew scriptures, and he would declare to them, the Messiah who was promised has come and it is Jesus. Verse 4 says, some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. And so it was that in these few short weeks, a church was established here in Thessalonica. 
But just as God's providence directed the initial establishment of this relationship with these believers, it also uh, directed the timing of this relationship. Notice verse 5, it says, But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar, and attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. Jason being one of the, the, those of the church, likely whose home they were meeting in, and it says when they did not uh, find them, they began dragging Jason and some brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And they stirred up the crowds and the city authorities who heard these things, and when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews." So for three weeks at least they were there. We don't know how much longer. It doesn't seem like it was much longer than three weeks, but could have been a little bit longer. And this riot erupts, and they are forced to leave the city. Not exactly how you draw up your church planting plan, right? You know, a good three weeks and we're out of here. No. Paul wouldn't have wanted to leave. Paul would have loved to have stayed, to instructed those believers to see that church grow and mature, but in God's providence, that's not what happened. And so they left to go to Berea. But you see, it was through God's providential direction that Paul, Silas, and Timothy, all three of those men, had a relationship with the church at Thessalonica. But this relationship wasn't what it was simply because of God's providence, plopping them there in in the midst of this situation, even causing them to go through a really intense season that would knit them together with one another. It was also a cultivated relationship. It was deepened through intentional cultivation. We see that cultivation of relationship first through deliberate interaction among them. While their initial interaction was certainly briefer than what was desired, Paul continued to prioritize and pursue a deeper relationship, an ongoing relationship with this church. Paul didn't say, I've got nothing but bad memories of Thessalonica, and so I want to forget that as fast as I can. No, he continued to care about them. Verse 13 says that in Berea, those Jews from Thessalonica came and stirred up the crowds there, and so Paul had to be sent from Berea in verse 14, and, and Paul went to Athens. Silas and Timothy remained for a while. Eventually, they joined him in Athens. And according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 17 and 18, Paul and, and Silas and Timothy desired to go back to check up on this young church to continue their ministry there, and yet they were hindered from doing so. As a result, Paul sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to see how they were doing. We see that in chapter 3, verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians. In the meantime, Paul went to Corinth in chapter 18, verse 1, and and eventually, in verse 5 of chapter 18, it says that Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia. Paul spent about a year and a half at Corinth, and at, at some point, Timothy returned from Thessalonica, Silas returned as well. We're not sure exactly where he had been, somewhere in Macedonia, likely not with Timothy. And Paul got this report from Timothy about how the church was doing, which was the catalyst for him to write this letter. 
So I want you to, to see this, this is not a form letter. This is not a letter that was, you know, Paul's like, you know, this is just my general, you've established a church, you send this letter kind of a thing, follow up. No, this is an intentional relationship that he is cultivating. Him personally wanting to go, being unable to, so sending Timothy, one of his trusted companions, to be with them and to learn of them and to encourage them. And then he sent this letter, likely back with Timothy. And so Paul wrote this letter to them, a letter that is both a personal encouragement and practical exhortation. You see, Paul cultivated a relationship with his church through deliberate interaction, both in person and through other means of communication available to them. Interaction that focused on knowing what was going on in their life and and coming alongside them to encourage and exhort them. So should we. You know, it's right that we trust God's providence in our life regarding relationships. God sovereignly works to connect us to others, and we aren't connected to everyone, and we don't need to try to be. You know, I don't know about you, I have, have relationships with people in different parts of the country or different parts of the world. I think of, of uh, our missionaries, Loja and Maruska from the Czech Republic. It's like, how on earth do I know people and have a connection to people in the Czech Republic? Well, it's simply through God's providence and, and the connections and relationships that have tied us together. And that's part of what God does is he directs our relationships, but it's also right that we cultivate relationships through intentional interaction, giving careful thought and priority to the building and deepening of those relationships. That's what is modeled by Paul and Silas and Timothy. Couldn't always be all that they wanted it to be, but they were intentional in that way. We too can cultivate relationships with others and and we can cultivate relationships even when we can't be together physically or in communication with one another. Because in addition to intentional interaction, this relationship between Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy and the church of Thessalonians was also cultivated through regular prayer. Turn back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And notice what Paul says of them. He says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. You see, the fact that Paul couldn't be with them didn't mean they were out of sight and out of mind. Rather, Paul, Silas, and Timothy prayed regularly for them. Part of that prayer was expressing gratitude for them, but we see elsewhere that it was more than that. It was also praying for them. Turn over a few pages to chapter 3. We'll get there in our study, but verse 11, he, he describes how, or verse 10 says, they were night and day praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. What kinds of things were they praying? Verse 11, now may our God and Father And the Lord Jesus, direct our way to you, help us to come and see them, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you. Because we're praying that your love will grow and deepen for others, just as we also do for you. It's interesting. He he says, our love for you is increasing and abounding And he's praying for them. I don't think that's an accident. You see, our love for others increases as we pray for them. Christian relationships are strengthened and deepened through regularly praying for one another. That was Paul and Silas and Timothy. 
and this church a, a deep relationship of affection that was providentially brought about by God and intentionally cultivated as they interacted and prayed for them. You know, the importance of Christian relationships is key to this opening section, and it's also a major theme of this book. You know, in the first three chapters just ooze with the, the personal devotion to and affection that Paul and these men had for the church of the Thessalon- Thessalonians. And it wasn't just the church generally. Notice even in this, this second verse where it says, we give thanks to God always for all of you. It's not just like, man, I'm so thankful for the church at, at, at Thessalonica. It's I'm thankful for all of them, for each individual who makes up that group. Paul and Silas and Timothy had a concern for each one as individuals and a love and devotion for them. We see this theme of Christian relationships and the interactions between Paul and his ministry partners as they describe how they uh, function together and their fellowship and partnership. And we see it in how they instruct the Thessalonians to conduct relationships within the church. Paul describes for them what their relationship should look like and the value and priority that that has. So let me ask you, do Christian relationships have the appropriate priority in your life? Are you intentional to cultivate them? And not just to cultivate relationships, but spiritually focused ones in which you pray regularly for others. That's the first ingredient for expressing consistent gratitude to God for his work in others is to have cultivated relationships with others. If we are isolated, if we are on an island by ourselves, we are rarely going to give thanks to God for the work that he is doing in others. We are part of a body and we are to recognize and to to appreciate what God is doing in others in that body as we have relationships with them. But there's a second ingredient Paul highlights here, which is continual remembrance in prayer. Pick up in verse 2 again. It says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind. This phrase, making mention of you in our prayers, in English it sounds almost like just a passing comment, like not a great thing. You know, if you say, I'm just kind of making mention of you, it sounds like, you know, I just kind of casually mention you and then I move on. That's really not the idea. It's, it's a, a, a word that doesn't just mean talking about. It's an idea of recollecting or remembering and, and therefore uh, speaking to God about. It's why we speak sometimes in English of remembering someone in prayer. You see this in some other uses of this word, like in Philippians 1.3, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Or 2 Timothy 1.3, when he says, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers. This idea of, of remembrance becomes even clearer with that next phrase, that next participle, where he says, constantly bearing in mind, constantly recalling to mind or, or remembering. Paul had a habit of giving thanks to God in part because he was continually remembering the, the work of God as he was praying for others. 
Now, you might ask the question, did they pray regularly for them because they remembered them and were grateful for them? That's like, you know, they're sitting around having dinner and they're just kind of talking about what God did among the Thessalonians and, and, you know, so thankful for that. Man, let's pray and thank God for the Thessalonians. Could be. Or did they remember them and be grateful for them because they prayed regularly for them? That's where we're praying We're praying that God will let us go to the Thessalonians and that God will cause their love to abound. And as they're thinking about them and praying for them, they're just remembering what God has already done. And that spurs them to to pray thanks and and, and give gratitude to God for the work that he has done. I think the answer is probably yes, right? Their prayers flowed out of their remembrance and gratitude. They prayed because they were thinking of them and grateful for them, and their remembrance and gratitude also flowed out of their praying. As they were praying for them, they remembered God's work in them and were grateful to God. You see, it's the context of prayer that they were remembering and giving thanks for God's work. But notice also the content of their remembrance. What were they remembering that fueled their gratitude? It, It wasn't the great meals they made for them. It wasn't that, man, they sent us away when things got really tough in the city. Thankfully, they didn't expect us to stay. No, what was it that they remembered? It was the spiritual fruit that God had produced in them. Notice verse 3, he says, We were constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Paul refers to that common Christian triad of virtue, faith, love, and hope. But he doesn't just refer to their faith, love, and hope, but to the outward demonstration of those realities. One one commentator puts it this way. He says, faith, love, and hope are not some invisible qualities that bear no relationship to the real world. He says, instead, they are vibrant realities that express themselves visibly. You see, you might ask somebody, hey, do you have faith? And they say, sure. I think I have faith. Do you have love? Sure, I love people. Do you have hope? Yeah, I think I have hope. Those are not invisible qualities that we just say we have. They are are tangible realities that bear fruit in how a person lives. Paul says, when we think of you, it's not just that you said you had faith or we hoped you had faith. It's that your faith was demonstrated. He was bearing in mind their work of faith. You see, they had faith, and that faith produced work. It produced effort in how they lived. You understand that that we are saved apart from works, that saving faith is not based on our effort or merit or work. Ephesians 2 makes that clear, that salvation is apart from works, but it does produce works. Having been saved by faith alone, these believers were growing in their continued uh, deepening of faith and their trust in Christ that led them to obedience and work. We'll see some of that next time at the end of chapter 1 as we are, are, in, are reminded by Paul of, of what was being produced through the Thessalonian believers, their example and testimony and proclamation that was going out from them. He gave thanks for their work of faith. He gave thanks for their labor of love. They had love, but it wasn't just a, a love of their 
that was professed by their words. It was a love that was demonstrated in, in their deeds, as we see in places like 1 John chapter, uh, chapter 3. It was an active, laboring love. Notice in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, we, we read earlier that Paul prayed that they would increase and abound in love. But in chapter 4, he, he says, you know you're to love one another, verse 10, for indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. This was a church that loved. They loved one another. They loved others throughout Macedonia, and they didn't just say they loved them, they demonstrated that. There was a labor of love, and he gave thanks for their steadfastness of hope. They had hope. Again, not wishful thinking, not just, you know, I hope this happens, hope the Cowboys beat the Giants tonight or whatever. Not wishful thinking, but a confident expectation and assurance And this hope gave them stability and steadfastness in the midst of difficulty and persecution. Now, when you think of a group of believers, a young church who had steadfastness in their situation, it's an amazing reality, isn't it? I mean, Paul was with them for like three weeks, persecution breaks out, how's that church going to do? Well, guess how they did? They did great. Why? Because they had hope. What was that hope? Well, he says it was a hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. It was a tangible hope rooted in a person and in a person who was coming again for them, their Savior who would return. That's what this chapter ends with, that they were waiting for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. That was their hope. It was a confident hope that Jesus has saved us, he has rescued us from the wrath to come, and he is coming again, and it produced a steadfastness in their life, a stability and a perseverance in their life. When Paul saw those things, when he remembered those things, along with Silas and and Timothy, what was their response? It was to give thanks to God. That's what fueled their thanks was dwelling on, constantly bearing in mind the fruit that God was producing in this young church. When we think of one another and the things that fuel our gratitude, what is it that comes to mind? So often in life we focus on the the external physical realities. We're thankful for our, our health or or for different ways that God has provided, and we should be grateful for all of those things. But the chief thing that fuels our gratitude to God for his work and others is not all the circumstantial things of our life. It is the the faith and the love and the hope that bears fruit in how we live. When you see another believer who's going through a difficult time and they're enduring it with steadfastness, give thanks to God as you pray for them. When you see other believers who are are living in faith and obedience in the midst of difficult circumstances or a, a culture that pushes us to compromise and yet we're standing firm in obedience to the Lord, give thanks to God. When you see another believer who is demonstrating love sacrificially for others, for their family, for others in this body or our community or other believers, let that fuel your gratitude to God for his work. 
what fueled Paul and his companions, consistent gratitude to God for his work in others. It was the cultivated relationships with others, the continual remembrance in prayer. They were constantly bearing in mind their work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. But why did that remembrance produce gratitude toward God and not primarily toward the Thessalonians? Why give thanks to God and not the believers at Thessalonica? Why didn't Paul say, I'm so thankful for you as I see your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope? Well, notice the third and final ingredient Paul highlights in verse 4. He says, knowing. So it's an important word. It's to be aware of or cognizant of, to recognize something. What was it that Paul recognized? What was it that he was aware of? Well, he says, knowing, brethren beloved by God, his choice of you. The third and final ingredient Paul highlights is a clear recognition of God's sovereignty. He begins with a recognition of God's sovereign choice. He says, knowing, we are aware of. In all this, we are, we are cognizant of the fact, brethren beloved by God, of his choice of you. Paul, Silas, and Timothy recognized that the reason the Thessalonian church was what it was, the reason some heard the word and believed and that they were transformed to the point of enduring through the the difficult first months of, of their church's existence was because they were loved by God and because of his choice of them. Paul revisits this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 13 When he says, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and faith in the truth. He says, you are beloved by God because he has chosen you from the beginning. This is similar language to what he uses in Ephesians 1.4 where Paul says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. This is not God looking ahead, looking down the corridors of time and seeing who would respond and saying, yeah, those are the ones that I'll take. No, this is God in eternity past because of nothing in ourselves, but solely on the basis of his will, choosing whom he will save. Apart from this, none would come to him. Ephesians 1 leads into Ephesians 2, where we're reminded that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that we have no hope apart from God's work. This is also not some sterile choice. This is not God choosing just kind of randomly or arbitrarily. It doesn't really matter to him. No, this is flowing from his sovereign grace and love. He says, brethren, be loved by God, his choice of you. You see, God has chosen those on whom he has set his love. God set his unique, sovereign, saving love on you if you are in Christ. To turn over to Ephesians chapter 1 briefly, we see this connection between God's election, God's choice, and his love so beautifully. Verse 4, again, he said, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. 
in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. God set his love, his unique, special, saving love, on those who did not deserve it, so that they would be adopted as his children, not because of anything in themselves, but solely because of the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace. Why did Paul give thanks to God for the Thessalonians? Because it was on account of God's love, God's choice, that they were his. You know, some say that's, that doesn't sound fair. Well, the reality is no damned sinner is ever treated unjustly. We all deserve death and judgment. The fact that God in his grace has chosen to set his love on and save some who are utterly undeserving is not unjust towards those he passes over to endure the consequences they deserve. That is entirely his prerogative as God. You know, if you have questions about this, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to Tom's sermons on Romans 9 and or Ephesians 1 that go into much greater detail. But how did, how did they know of God's sovereign choice of these believers at Thessalonica? How do you know if you are beloved by God and chosen of him? Is it because, you know, they glow in the dark or something, or they have a special gleam in their eye, you know, that he could recognize No, we know of God's sovereign choice in eternity past because of how it is displayed in the present. They had a clear recognition of God's sovereign choice, which they knew to be true because of their clear recognition, secondly, of God's sovereign work. Notice how he continues back in 1 Thessalonians 1. He says, knowing brethren beloved by God, his choice of you, how do you know that, Paul? Verse 5, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. God's sovereign choice of election is born out in time. The gospel bore fruit in their lives. When Paul walked into Thessalonica, did he know who was beloved by God and who was chosen? He did not. But as he proclaimed the gospel, and as that gospel went forth in power, and people responded to that gospel, they believed, turning from their sins, turning from their idolatry to God, and were transformed increasingly into the image of Christ, Paul knew. The gospel bore fruit in their lives. Now, one question about these phrases, about the gospel not coming in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction is, do those refer to the proclamation of the gospel or do they refer more to the reception of the gospel? Is it about Paul and Silas and Timothy and them proclaiming the gospel or is it more about the Thessalonians and their reception to the gospel? If it's more about the proclamation, it's, it didn't come in word only. They weren't simply talking, making noise, but it, the gospel came in power. They, they spoke with power because the gospel is the power of God, Romans 1.16 says, for salvation to everyone who believes. 
could also refer to the accompanying signs that were performed at times by the apostles, although there's no mention of that in Acts at Thessalonica. The gospel came in the Holy Spirit, the Spirit speaking through the Word of God proclaimed and the Spirit bringing conviction of sin and giving new life. With full conviction, Paul and those who proclaimed the truth were fully convinced. They believed with all their heart the truth of the gospel and they proclaimed it with boldness to others. Or is it talking about the reception, that it was not in word only. They didn't just hear words, but they accepted as 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says, as the word of God which performs its work. That gospel came in power and they were convicted of sin and the Holy Spirit brought life to their dead hearts through his sovereign grace and regeneration so that they became fully convinced of the truth of the gospel and they repented and believed in that gospel. Well, the reality is both are true. The, the power of God in the proclamation of God, the gospel is the power of God for the transformation of those who hear and respond to the gospel. The fruit produced by the proclamation was not in any way due to the eloquence of the messenger, but because of the power of God at work through the spirit of God to bring the conviction of God in their hearts. You see, as Paul reflected on the work done in the Thessalonians, he didn't congratulate himself or Silas and Timothy, did he? He didn't say, man, what a month. I mean, we were only there for like three weeks, and look at what all happened. We did something right, didn't we, boys? No, did he, did he congratulate the Thessalonians? Man, you guys are so smart. You're the ones who responded in the city. And man, I've never seen a church get this mature this fast. You guys are doing something right. No. He gave thanks to God, whose sovereign choice and work through the gospel accomplished that work. Paul recognized clearly God's sovereign choice of them and God's sovereign work in their life. But notice Paul also had a clear recognition of God's sovereign means. He does say at the beginning of this verse, the gospel did not come to you in word only. Paul is not minimizing the importance of words. He's not saying, no big deal if the gospel ever comes in words. No, he's, he's not minimizing the importance of speaking the gospel, of using words. Rather, he's acknowledging the gospel must be proclaimed in words. And it must be the true gospel. You see, the gospel mattered, that it was the right gospel that it was proclaimed with words. That wasn't enough. The power of God was necessary to transform lives, but God does that work through the proclaimed message. The message matters. The true gospel must be proclaimed. Romans 10, as we were reminded of a couple of weeks ago on our Mission Sunday, Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how will they call on him in whom they've not believed? How will they believe in him whom they've not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. God is sovereign. He works to save undeserving sinners, but he does it through the means of the proclaimed gospel. The message matters. The message must be proclaimed. Faith comes by hearing the proclaimed word of God. But it's not just the message 
that matters. The messenger matters as well. Notice how Paul concludes this verse. He says, our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Is Paul saying the reason you responded to the gospel is because we were such great guys? Is that his point? No, Paul knows better. Paul's not saying that. He's thanking God and he's recognizing God's sovereign work. But he is acknowledging that God in his sovereignty uses the means of the proclaimed word through those who are faithful and godly. The character of the messenger matters as well. Paul will describe more about what kind of men they were in the coming verses and chapters, but for now he's simply emphasizing the fact that our character and example as a messenger is part of the means God sovereignly uses. We see this over and over throughout Scripture. One of my favorite texts is in 2 Timothy chapter 3, if you turn there with me briefly, where Paul is writing to Timothy and he reminds him in verse 13 of of how evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Things are getting worse around you, Timothy, but you, verse 14, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of. He says, Timothy, you remain committed. The things you've learned and heard and are convinced of, you continue in that. And why does he say he he should continue in that? Notice The first line of argumentation that he gives is knowing from whom you have learned them. He says, you remember, Timothy, who it was who taught you these things. It was Paul, it was Timothy's mother, Timothy's grandmother who had taught him these things. And you continue, verse 15, because from childhood you've known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. The message matters too. He knew the scriptures from childhood, which are able to give the wisdom that leads to salvation. But the messenger mattered as well. You see, our example is important along with our instruction. This has such significance in any evangelistic or discipleship relationship. It's not just enough to say the right things, but we must be Uh, an example of those things. We must be striving to live faithfully, not just focused on our message, but focused on who we are as messengers. That's why Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do, you will ensure salvation, both to yourself, for yourself and those who hear you. That's why our example matters. It's why our example as parents is so important. I'm humbled and and challenged by a quote from J.C. Ryle in his book, The Duties of Parents. He quoted a man named Archbishop Tillotson who said, to give children good instruction and a bad example is but beckoning to them with the head to show them the way to heaven while we take them by the hand and lead them in the way to hell. God is sovereign. He can save whom he will. But his normal means is a faithfully proclaimed message that is reinforced through the character and example of the messenger. 
John Engel James, in his book, The Christian Father's Present to His Children, said, Parents, as you would wish your instructions and admonitions to your family to be successful, enforce them by the power of holy example. And he says these sobering words to some parents, I would give this advice, say less about religion to your children or else manifest more of its influence. Leave off family prayer or else leave off family sins. Now, it's not really an option, is it, to not speak the truth to our children, but his point is we better back that up with our life. Does that mean we need to have to be perfect? No. God is gracious. God uses flawed vessels, but flawed vessels who love him and are eager to serve him and who are humble before him. You see, salvation is a gift of God's sovereign grace. We must be faithful to proclaim the true gospel and to manifest its influence in our lives, for God is sovereign over not only the work, but the means. When we see the fruit produced in the lives of others, the result is only God gets the glory. As I mentioned, Paul is not boasting here about their example. He understood its importance, but he also was keenly aware that it was also the result of God's sovereign grace and work in his life. If it was up to Paul, he would have been right there with the Jews persecuting that church. But instead, in God's grace, he was the one proclaiming that message of the gospel to them. So what was it? that fueled Paul, Silas, and Timothy's consistent expression of gratitude for God's work in others. They give us three ingredients in these opening verses. Cultivated relationships with others. God providentially connected Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the believers at Thessalonica. and They intentionally cultivated those relationships through the interactions that they had, both in person and things like this letter and, and through prayer. And they also modeled continual remembrance in prayer. They regularly prayed for the Thessalonians and they were mindful of and thanked God for his work in them and a clear recognition of God's sovereignty as they reflected on that transformation of the believers in Thessalonica. They were keenly aware that it was the result of God's sovereign choice and work. But that recognition didn't make them complacent. It motivated them to be faithful in their example and in their proclamation of the gospel, knowing that God is sovereign both over the ends and the means. That's really what we're going to see next time as we continue this chapter is their gratitude for what God was doing through the Thessalonians. They knew God is faithful to use the example of believers and the proclamation of his word to continue to do what they had seen in the church at Thessalonica to save sinners and to transform them into the image of his son. And when that happens, our response is gratitude for God's work in others. May these ingredients characterize our lives as well and may they fuel us to give thanks to God always for his work in others. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this book. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to study it together this year, and we pray that you would use it in our own hearts and lives. Lord, tonight, use it to stir us to gratitude, first, for the work that you have done in our life as your children. Lord, may we be grateful we are in Christ for your sovereign love and choice and for the fruit that's producing in our lives. Lord, we 
aren't what we desire to be, but we also recognize how you have worked powerfully in our lives by your grace. And Lord, may we also be faithful to give you praise for your work in others. May we cultivate relationships with one another so that we can be involved in and recognize the work that you are doing and we can pray for one another faithfully and we can praise you for the work that you do. Lord, we love you, we thank you, we entrust the rest of our night to you now in Christ's name, amen.